0: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today.
1: People attention. Calling to city Turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message.
3: This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello, and welcome to Show Five Hundred and Twenty Six. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. We are gripped, gripped, folks. Why the country's at a standstill with this snow? Oh, man, I was actually on night shift. When it first came down, and it didn't take, didn't take much to knock us down, mind you. You know, the other countries there that have minus this and, and the other, you know, and oh, a bit snow, we screwed, mind you. Oh, it's <laughs> even the dogs don't want to go out of here, so hello to everyone who's waking up there to a kind of winter wonderland, it's ah, it's cold, man. Heating on, yes. Just when I'm in the house so I knock it off with and <laughs> go Oh god, hey, hey, gotta be thrifty. Tell you what's coming in to today's show. Main Fiction is A Strange Loop by T.R. Napa. Then we have, it is it is the end of the month when I'm recording this show there now. It is the 27th of mm, <laughs> had to check my calendar there, February, so it'll go out on the 28th as well. It is Science News with Mr. J.J. Campanella. That is all coming into today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So with our march on towards 500 Patreon supporters, I don't care how we get there, if it's $1, $1, man, let's march on up that hill and hit 500. And how long it's going to take, well? Last week we were at 395. Today, as of recording this, we are at 398. Yeah, so we're moving a little bit slower than last week. But hey, it does not matter. We are moving in that right direction. So I want to just say a big thank you to... Let's see if I butcher any of these ones. Get in touch if I do, mind you. That would be... And write us a little email. Just say Tony have failed miserably. So the first up is Derek. Big Derek W. McCalla. Derek McCullough? McCullough, McCullough, yes Derek, yeah, have I? No, no big thank you Derek, we have Paul Hargreaves, and a couple of people updated their pledge as well, John Dow, big thank you to John, and Mitchell, thank you so much, and one more who came into the fold and joined Patreon, Greg, oh Greg, what's Casagrande, no Casagranda, Casagrande, Greg, is that right? Big thank you anyway, sir. So thank you so I much. Mean, that might have got us that one. Actually, both Derek and Greg, bloody hell, let us know. So, big thank you. Let's get up towards, you know, the 500 there. Just $1. Come over and just get it up there. A little competition we're running now on District of Wonders. So, main fiction. Is, I'm 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 all over the shop here. I've got these glasses on and I'm not. I need to give him a bit of a clean... Anyways, it is the main fiction... A Strange Loop by T.R. Napa, originally published in one of my favourite magazines, Interzone. T.R. Napa's short fiction has appeared in Ajimov's Interzone, Lontar, a journal of Southeastern Asian speculative fiction, and numerous others. His work has been translated into Hebrew, German, and French. A Strange Loop was included in Neil Clark's Best Science Fiction of the Year, Volume 2, which was 2017, by Profession. T.R. Napa is an aid worker recently returned to Australia after three years in Vietnam. He is currently writing a PhD on speculative fiction of East and Southeast Asia. He does not own a cat. Story is narrated by Eric Luke. Eric Luke is the screenwriter of the Joe Dandier film Explorers, which is currently in development as a remake. The comic book Ghost and Wonder Woman and wrote and directed not-quite-human films for Disney's TV. His current project, Interface, a meta-horror audiobook about an audiobook that kills, is available free on iTunes and Quillhammer. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present A Strange Loop by
2: T.R. Knapper In the end, we self-perceiving, self-inventing, locked-in mirages are little miracles of self-reference. Douglas R. Hofstadter, I am a Strange Loop. A Huge Clown Jaws as wide as Irving was tall, about to swallow him whole. A woman, black hair with a fringe cut too short, green eye shadow, skin so smooth it looked real-life airbrushed. The woman, what was her name again? Yelling at him, perfect skin creased with contempt. A red fireworks blast, neon, frozen into the sky. Fairy floss and sweat, and machine grease in his nostrils, and a girl, freckled, staring up at him with tears in her eyes, and those sounds, tinny music on a maddening, endless cycle, and the clown swallowing him, while the woman yelled, and the girl watched with sadness. Irving Kupferman blinked into consciousness. White room with a white duo, man and woman standing over him. The woman, young, lips glistening in the bright lights, pressed a paper cup into his hand. Drink this, she said. Irving drank, first sipping, then gulping, as the extent of his thirst hit him. The man looked familiar. He wore a white lab coat and grasped a flexi-screen in both hands, looking down into its green-glowing ideograms. The doctor, Irving was pretty sure that's what he was, had a full head of silver hair that probably wasn't real and a movie star chin that most definitely wasn't real. The gold of the heavy chain around his wrist, that would be real. The doctor looked 40, but he stank of money, probably closer to 60. Dr. Edward, the name floated up and popped into Irving's forebrain, spoke to the nurse. Potentials for synaptic growth and multiplication high, as are an increased release of kinase-A proteins. Emotional response, very high. Memories appear authentic across all measures, or the patient believes they are real in any case. He enunciated each word clearly, like he expected his audience to savor every single one. Yes, doctor, the nurse replied, smiling as she eased something from the top of Irving's head. He caught a glimpse of a green neon circle. To his left, coming into view as the nurse moved to one side, was a painting of a tobacco pipe. Underneath it was written, This is not a pipe. Irving furrowed his brow at that. The doctor looked up at Irving and gave him the perfect imitation of a smile, his pristine white teeth matching the room. You always bring us a first-class product, Irving. Irving grunted and handed the nurse the empty cup. Now, do you remember anything of the memory you just sold? Irving shook his head. No, not really. It's like a dream. It's there at the edge of my mind. Fragments. There was a woman. I think she was angry. Dr. Edward nodded. Best that you sold it to us, then. The key to happiness, Irving, is a bad memory. Irving gave a non-committal shrug. Those remaining fragments should fade away, and by the time you get home today, they will have decamped completely from your cerebral cortex. But remember, Irving, said the doctor, finger in the air, in the unlikely event any of this does come back to you, you must inform us post-haste. It is a violation of mnemonic copyright to remember things you no longer legally own. In such an eventuality, we would need you to return here immediately to eliminate the rogue memories. Post-haste, said Irving, indubitably. The doctor missed the sarcasm, smiled insincerely, and returned to looking over his flexi-screen. Irving leaned back into the chair. "'relieved at the embrace of the soft, real leather against the back of his head. "'He'd been seated during the procedure, yet still felt exhausted. "'How can I know if I'm remembering things I've sold?' "'Ah, yes, very good question,' said the doctor, "'returning Irving's gaze with a supercilious expression "'that clearly indicated that, in fact, it was a very stupid question.' We have a trace program downloaded from the Candle U machine into your memory pin. If it picks up a specific neural pattern in your cerebral cortex, a unique grouping we call a memory print, you will receive a warning on retina advising you that you have begun to reconsolidate memories under license to us here at Thanks for the Memories. Often this will happen when you are dreaming. Irving rubbed at his eye. You tell me this often, doctor? Very, the nurse suppressed a giggle. Irving nodded at her. Is this an actual nurse, or are the staff here hired to laugh at you? The doctor raised an eyebrow. The nurse retained her smile as she said, A postgraduate qualification, three-year internship, and a field of 500 candidates for this position. Her response came easy. Irving pushed his unruly hair back from his forehead. I guess I've said that before as well. Once or twice, said the doctor with a smirk. When you're in a particularly bad mood, something, I suspect, related to the experience you just sold us. Yeah, forget it. I was hoping you would, replied the doctor. The nurse's smile widened. Irving rolled his eyes. The doctor pulled a vial from the pocket of his coat. This is neothabane. Pour yourself a stiff drink when you get home, and add this before you imbibe. The memory eradication procedure should be sufficient to disrupt the neural print containing the target memory. But this, the doctor held the vial up, its amber contents catching the light, will be sure to wipe any remnants clean. You likely will not remember coming here to thanks for the memories, and you certainly will not remember either the procedure or this conversation. No problem, said Irving, and touched the cochlear glyph implant behind his left ear, fingertip against the small circle of cool steel. Exo-memory, remind me to drink Dr. Edwards' date-rape drug when I get home. His exo-memory whispered back to him, its tone as flat as the steel of the implant. Yes, Mr. Cufferman. Unperturbed, the doctor typed something into his flexi-screen. And finally, your compensation has gone through. A message appeared on Retina, to Irving's eyes only, in soft green glowing type. A deposit of $7,500 has been recorded in your UberCoin account. You've done it. You've hit your savings target. Next steps. 1. Ask your wife, on Dean Drinkwater, out to dinner, to an expensive restaurant. 2. At dinner, explain that through your entrepreneurial acumen, you've become highly successful. A. Making sure to avoid mention of your numerous trips to Thanks for the Memories. 3. As financial security has always been important to Ondine, it is important that you emphasize both your newfound reliability and your considerable wealth. 4. This will convince her to end your trial separation and let you return home to her and your daughter, Eulalie. Just a glance at the list made him smile. He'd done it. It had been a long time. It had been... Well, he wasn't sure how long it had been. None of that mattered now. He was going to be reunited with his wife and daughter. Irving pushed himself out of the chair and walked out of the room. The doctor was trying to tell him something. He didn't hear a word the man said. He walked through the expansive marble reception and stepped out of the large double doors of the front of the building. Irving breathed deeply, smile still on his face, squinting under a hot white sun. It was time for him to come home. Irving. He looked up, and there she was. Ondine. Purple eyeshadow black hair with a fringe cut too short, and that soft, glowing skin. She was underdressed in denim pants and a tight leather jacket, but he didn't notice that. She was twenty minutes late, but he didn't think about that either. All he could think about at that moment was the time long ago when he could have leaned over and kissed this beautiful woman, and she would have laughed and let him do so. She wasn't laughing now. Undine," he said, smiling despite the expression on her face. He stood up, dropping the gold-trimmed napkin he'd been playing with, and moved around the table to take her chair out. I got it, Irving, I got it, she said. But he pulled it out anyway. She treated that with a raised eyebrow and half-smile. I'm, uh, sorry I'm late. Undine's voice was rich, throaty. She could be lead singer in a hard rock band or the voiceover for a sexy cartoon character. Oh, it's nothing, nothing. Wine? No, she said, brusquely. And then, less so. Not at lunch. I've got to get back to work after this. Well, he grimaced. You couldn't make dinner. Be thankful you got lunch, she said, deadpan. Something twisted in his chest. Shall we order, then? Maybe. What's this about, Irving? She asked, indicating his clothes with her chin. He glanced down. The suit was dark blue, tailor-made, with sharp creases freshly pressed. He wore a white shirt and smoke-blue tie, set with a silver tie pin that matched the ring on his pinky finger. He'd shaved his rough beard off, dabbed on some cologne, and tied his unruly curls back in a short ponytail. The restaurant was none other than... The prince, the most sought-after dining spot in town. Gold-gilded cutlery, waiters in blood-red jackets, white light glinting through crystal chandeliers, and the soft murmurings of the good and great as they smiled fake smiles at each other and crunched hors d'oeuvres between perfectly symmetrical teeth. I'm trying to make an impression, he said. You look like an insurance salesman. That wasn't the impression I was going for. So you're not trying to sell me something? Just a dream.
1: Oh, Irving,
2: she said. Spare the schmaltz, buster. It doesn't suit either of us. But she smiled as she said it, and the twisting in Irving's chest loosened a little. He pointed at her clothes. Where do you get to work dressed like that? You a roadie now? I work from home, you know that. Doing what? Her brows furrowed. Speech therapist, Irving. Same as always. Same as I've been doing for the past ten years. Yes, yes, of course, he lied. I meant the same sort of speech therapy you used to do? She narrowed her eyes. Right. Sure. The same sort of speech therapy as I always did. Irving carefully hid his embarrassment. And Eulalie, how is she? Still the smartest kid in class? Undine paused, permitting her irritation to ebb. Yes. Her teacher thinks she'll be able to skip fourth grade. She... Undine, trailed off, looked down at her purple-painted nails. She? She sighed and looked back at him. She misses you. I miss her, too, he said, and it was the truest thing he'd said in a long time. Things went well after that. For a little while, anyway. Undine agreed that she may as well stay for lunch, as she was there after all. So they ate, and it was good. He ordered real meat, and Undine said, Oh no, eyes like circles, but he insisted, and they shared a minute steak. They agreed neither of them had eaten meat since they honeymooned in Fiji, and then laughed about getting kicked out of the resort. They'd taken magic mushrooms, and, in the throes of a sublime mind and body buzz, broken into the kids' play center and pasted glitter all over their naked bodies. Undine had then convinced Irving that they were Moroccan glowworms looking for a burrow. A groundskeeper caught them an hour later, digging a hole in a golf course green with their hands. Irving excused himself to the bathroom after they'd finished the main. He checked the stalls to make sure he was alone, then put a finger to his implant. Exomemory. I want on-retina recall dialed to maximum while I have lunch with Ondine Drinkwater. I don't want to forget a single detail about our lives together. Not a detail. Understood? Understood, Mr. Kupperman whispered the implant. I am required to remind you that you have previously ordered me to keep all memory prompts down to level one, only in case of emergency or direct request. You said, and I quote, I don't need that shit haunting me anymore. Irving looked at himself in the mirror. He didn't recognize the guy in there. The shiny blue suit and the pale, sweaty skin. And the ponytail. And that ridiculous tie pin he bought for ten grand at a glittering store full of smug service staff. He looked like a douche. Felt like one, too. The only thing that remained familiar was the nose. Big hook nose that Undine charitably called Roman. Combined with the bags under his eyes, he didn't feel very Roman right then. He looked like a vulture, picking over the carcass of his marriage. Bloody hell, he said to himself. Way to ruin the mood, soul. Sorry, Mr. Cufferman, murmured the implant. Nothing. It's nothing. Mr. Cufferman? What? he hissed. Are you sure you want your exomemory turned up to maximum? He looked away from the mirror. You heard me. I want to remember everything. Dessert came. She had ice cream. He had coffee, strong and black. Undine was quiet, biting her bottom lip as she ran her fingers slow around the edge of the porcelain bowl. Irving waited for her to say what she wanted to say. Eventually she did. So, where did all this, she waved a hand at the room, come from? Hope, Ondine. It came from hope, he said, and reached across the table, putting his hand on hers. She didn't take hers away. Hope can be the irrational desire for a miracle, despite all evidence to the contrary. But that's not the sort of hope I have. Mine is based on the reality of what we had together, Undine, and the concrete steps I've taken to reclaim my life. I'm successful now, like you always said I could be. I can be someone you depend on. I'm someone you can build realistic hopes around. All this is a manifestation of that. Not an idle promise, but a promise kept to myself that I was worthy enough to get you back. Undine was silent for a time a strange expression on her face. You have been practicing that? No. His exomemory typed, You have been practicing, seven times this morning and eleven times last night, twelve in front of the mirror, five while walking in a circle around the kitchen table, once while you were on the toilet. He rubbed his eye, annoyed at the contradictory blurb in the corner of his vision. Yes, okay, yes. I've been practicing, he looked at her. How'd I do? He did fine. But? For the next few weeks, every time he smelled the bitter scent of strong black coffee, his mind would time travel backwards, and he'd see her as she was then. Something alive and real against the forced elegance of the restaurant and the manufactured glamour of its patrons. He would remember every detail, her leather jacket, creased with decades of loving use, her smooth skin, a perfection no amount of genetic manipulation could replicate, and the sadness in her eyes as she first realized, and then rejected, his intentions. But, Irving, she said, I'm happy you're back on your feet again, truly happy, I mean that. And if you want to start seeing Eulalie, then I'll agree to that. Slow, at first, with me there. At my place. She wants to see her father again, and I want you back in her life. Ondine sighed. But you and I, Irving? That's ancient history. We had a good run. A few good years followed by a couple of terrible ones. It's how these things end all the time, every day. In bitterness and regret. There's no hope left for us. Just the rubble. He gripped her hand harder. But, Undine, you're not listening. This restaurant isn't an accident. This is who I am now. I'm successful. I'm a winner. I'm all those things you want me to be. She pulled her hand from his. The softness left her voice. It isn't about money. Bullshit, he said, loud enough for heads to turn their way. He lowered it again. Bullshit. It's all you've ever talked about. That's not true. It is precisely true. Always money. Money for the rent. For holidays, organic food, fancy medicine, better schools, better fucking everything. You want me to play it back for you right now, I still have all those memories. As he spoke, the exo-memory popped up on Retina, taking some of the heat out of his accusations. I have many examples of Ondine criticizing you for other reasons. Would you like me to list them? Undine didn't get angry. Instead, she sighed, pushing her two scoops of $50 ice cream absently with her spoon. I'm sure you could play back those fights. I remember all that, too. And you're right, it was wrong of me to put it that way. When you're angry, you reach for the cheap shots. And they were cheap shots. But it was never about that. Then, what was it about? She looked up from the bowl, her face tinged with regret. It was about ambition, Irving. We used to dream and plan together. About our family, our careers. But you fell into this rut and never got out. You gave up on nanotech, neglected your daughter. Me. God, Irving, you spent more time betting on weather patterns and drinking gin with your pals down at the Bulls Club than you ever did on trying to make a career. You were just going through the motions of life, constantly looking over the horizon, waiting for your ship to come in. That's not true. Undine Drinkwater is correct. She encouraged you on 103 occasions to pursue your career. You spent 2,428 hours researching and betting on weather patterns, whereas you spent 41 hours applying for jobs in the nanotechnology field. An image appeared above the words, a Von Dien concerned expression on her face. If he gave his exomemory the command, the image would become a playback of Von Dien from many years before, encouraging him to pursue his career. He didn't give the command. The present-day Undine continued talking, her voice overlapping with the on-retina accusations. Remember when you won the university prize for your thesis on nanotechnology and desertification? You could have parlayed that into a career. You had some great companies offer you an internship. She shook her head. But you said you didn't want to work for free. You wanted the big bucks straight away. So you turned them all down. He creased his forehead. Ondine Drinkwater is incorrect about the university prize. No record of receiving an award for your thesis exists in your exo-memory. Ondine Drinkwater's recollections of job offers are correct. You rejected job offers from four different companies. I never won a university prize. Her eyes narrowed. What are you talking about? Never won. Something itched in his mind. He couldn't remember it. Unless. You don't remember, do you? He set his jaw. I don't remember because it never happened. Ondine sighed through her nose. It was one of the best nights we ever had, Irving. We got wasted at the reception at the Chancellor's house. We danced and danced while all the guests just stood around staring at us. And we snuck off and did it in one of the spare rooms. The Chancellor's wife found us the next morning, passed out on the bed. You were naked except for a smoking jacket you'd stolen from the Chancellor's wardrobe. She shook her head, half-smiling at the memory. She didn't even blink. Just told us she was happy someone enjoyed the party. Then cooked us omelets for breakfast. Irving was silent. How can you not remember that, Irving? And what did you mean before when you said you still had all those memories of us fighting? I... He broke eye contact, looked down into the black of his coffee. She shook her head. I knew it. I knew it. You're selling memories, aren't you? That's what all this... She dropped her spoon into the ice cream. Bullshit is. This room filled with wankers that ridiculous suit it's another get rich quick scheme isn't it no no it's not another scheme you have previously discussed on 28 occasions getting rich quick through selling memories mr kufferman your bank account currently has over 15 million dollars which you have claimed in conversation with others has come from memory sales while your exo-memory has no direct recordings of you selling memory, it does have twenty-three instances of you approaching a memory acquisition business. It is possible you had these sections of your memory wiped during the procedure. I have scanned the two years since you separated from Ondine and can find no other possible source of your current wealth. Okay, Irving said, fists clenching against the tabletop. Okay. He breathed out slowly. Okay, yeah, I sold some memories. Just to get ahead. Get my life back together. He tried to reach for her again, but she jerked her hand away like he just offered her a dead rat. I did it for us, Undine, For our family. Oh, Irving. You and your bullshit. Every scheme was always for the family. She threw one hand up, exasperated. I don't get it. Why would you sell something so good? If your goal was getting back together with me, why would you sell one of the best moments we shared? He said, I don't know. But he did know. Even if he couldn't remember the procedures, he understood the pricing structure behind them perfectly. The most emotionally potent memories always fetch the most money. That and them being unique, wiping them from one's own memory so the rich client was the sole proprietor. I didn't see it as selling memories. I saw it as an investment in a long, happy future of new memories. Once we're back together, I'll never have to sell another. More bullshit. She started to get up from her seat. And I'm done listening to it. Wait, he got up from his seat as well. Eulalie, I do want to see our daughter. That's not bullshit. As the words came out of his mouth, he felt the truth of them and was relieved. She rubbed her forehead, but he'd found the right nerve. She sat back down gingerly on the edge of the seat. He took a deep breath. His exomemory assumed the pause was an invitation for further information. Eulalie, your daughter, eight years old. A picture of his daughter's face appeared above the writing. Hazel eyes like his, black hair like her mother's. A cheeky grin all her own. Eulalie goes to North Fitzroy Montessori Primary School. Her favorite color is purple with blue spots, and she has a pet goldfish called Squeak and Bubble. Are you reading something on retina? asked Ondine sharply. He refocused on her. No. Bullshit. Same old Irving. Even now, in your grand attempt at winning me back, you can't help but put the free wave on. Is there a cricket game on today? I'm not watching the cricket. I'm not watching anything. I don't believe you. It was ever thus. Zoned out on some stupid live feed every time I tried to talk to you. He felt his face going red. Part anger, part embarrassment. That's not true. It is mostly true. You watched sports, betting markets, or Chinese kung fu films on retina during 81% of your conversations with Ondine. His fingernails dug into the palms of his hand. Ondine looked at him for ten long seconds before she said, Do you remember Luna Park? It was a test. And it was immediately clear it was a test he was going to fail. Um, do you remember Luna Park, Irving? Yes. He licked his lips. Of course. Don't lie to me. I'm not lying. I do remember Luna Park. No recording of Luna Park exists in your exo-memory. Oh, stop. Her eyes went a stone-cold shade of bitter. I will not stop. No. No, not you. It's my exo-memory. It... I knew it. He hit the table. Cutlery danced, heads turned his way again, and a middle-aged man in a red jacket suddenly appeared next to the table. "'Is everything all right here, sir?' "'Yes, yes,' said Irving. "'We're fine,' Undine said to the maitre d'. "'It's not a problem. I'm leaving,' and got up from her seat. "'I think that would be best,' replied the maitre d'. Irving reached out his hand to her, begging. "'No, Undine, Please don't leave.' Undine looked down at him, eyes glistening. You need help, Irving. Professional help. You're stuck in an endless loop of self-denial. You need to find a way out. She walked away. Sir, said the head waiter, interposing himself between Irving at the exit as he rose to follow his wife. Irving's lip curled in anger, but before he could barge past, the man spoke, voice an urgent whisper. Sir! You are making a scene. Fuck you, Irving hissed. He pushed past, jogging from the restaurant, red-faced, as everyone stared. He couldn't see Undine when he burst out onto the street, squinting under the bone-white sun, spinning around, trying to glimpse her receding form in the heat shimmer rising from the sidewalk. His eyes watered from the sun. The sun. That's what he tried to tell himself, anyway. Before he sold the memory, a few weeks later. Irving stood in the huge clown mouth that formed the entrance of Luna Park, jaws three times as wide as he was tall. Eulalie waited, looking up at him, a cloud of pink fairy floss in her left hand. She was trying to tell him something, but he had a hand up, trying to stop her from speaking while he read the weather reports on Retina. He placed a series of bets on temperature and precipitation ranges in southeastern China, and the official results were just coming in. Fuck it, he yelled. Daddy? Fuck, fuck, fuck! But Daddy! Not now, Eulalie! But Daddy, I want to go not now, damn it! He screamed. Eulalie jumped, dropping the floss to the ground. Tears welled instantly. Undine had walked ahead, not realizing that he and Eulalie had stopped. Now she returned just to hear the end of him yelling. She seemed to be in shock for a few seconds, standing there, her smooth skin glowing in the blinking neon backwash of the amusement park. Jesus Irving, she said, picking her daughter up. Quiet, he hissed, eyes unfocused as the massacre of his wagers rolled down on Retina. Quiet? No. I'm not, he tuned her out, her words background static to failure's sting. He clenched his teeth as the news got worse and worse, and as Undine's criticism started to cut through his concentration. Enough, he yelled. Enough of your nagging. Enough of your complaints. She put a hand over her daughter's ear. Not in front of Eulalie. You, Eulalie, you, he sneered, focusing now on wife and daughter. I hate that name. Where did you get it? Top ten hippest new names for children in the Huffington Post. Undine's mouth popped open, struggling to get out a reply. He didn't let her. No. Time for me to speak now. Time for me to speak. He jabbed a finger at her with each word. You never support my business decisions. You never listen to me. All I get from you is scorn and derision. You didn't even let me have a say in our own daughter's name. (gasps) Eulalie! What sort of a ridiculous name is that? The steam started to leave his delivery as he watched the reaction of his wife and daughter. Eulalie, head buried in her mother's shoulder, sobbing. Ondine, her perfect skin, creased with contempt. You, you, you don't understand, he stuttered, his rage train coming off its rails. I understand, Irving. Don't look at me like that. Lose another bet, I take it? It's not that simple. Oh, it is, Irving. It is exactly that simple, she said, her voice a terrifying calm. It's the most uncomplicated thing in the world. You're lazy. Don't. Don't. Greedy. Don't. Resentful. Not in front of you, Laley. Cruel, isn't it? Almost as bad as telling your own daughter that you hate her name. Well, I've needed to be cruel for a long time, but I've been a coward. Not anymore. I'm going to do what I needed to do a year ago, and I'm doing here in front of your daughter so you understand that it is final. Eulalie had taken her head from her mother's shoulder and was staring up at her as she spoke. His eyes flicked to his daughter, then back to his wife. Don't. I'm sorry. Goodbye, Irving. She walked away. Only his daughter looked back, watching him over her mother's shoulder, eyes filled with tears. Irving watched them leave, hands hanging limply at his side. Nowhere else to go, he wandered back into Luna Park, into the cacophony of tinny music on a maddening, endless cycle, into the smell of fairy floss and sweat and machine grease. And the clown, swallowing him. While warning, 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 these memories are property of Mobius Group. Report immediately to your nearest Thanks for the Memories franchise for memory realignment. Bleep, 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 bleep. Warning, 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 these memories are property of the Mobius Group. Report immediately to your nearest Thanks for the Memories franchise for memory realignment. Bleep, bleep, bleep. No! Irving woke himself with a moan. No! He switched off the alarm and dismissed the message flashing on Retina. He lay back on the bed, stared at the off-white ceiling. Moonlight and streetlight ebbed through the slatted window. The hum of the building's hydrogen generator drifted up from below. He took control of his breathing the rise and fall of his chest slowing. No. The ubiquitous double-happiness ideogram split in two as the doors opened for Irving. The room inside was gloomy, thick with incense. A cymbal and discordant pipes of traditional Chinese music played softly from hidden speakers. And overhead, red lanterns swung slightly on a breeze Irving couldn't feel. A young Chinese man in a traditional straight-colored suit sat behind a dark wood reception desk. Um, said Irving, my exo-memory told me I had an appointment. The receptionist stood and bowed. Mr. Kupferman, Omissioner Zhao is waiting for you. Follow me. Irving tried to bow back, but the young man had already disappeared down the dim, red-tinted corridor. Irving was shown through a dark redwood door carved with stylistic eastern dragons with large, wild eyes. The receptionist closed the door behind Irving, leaving him in an even darker room. It took his eyes a moment to adjust. Within the gloom lay a traditional study with dark wood-paneled walls interspersed with red scrolls marked with calligraphy. There were white and blue porcelain pots sitting on plinths Leather-bound books along the back wall, a golden bust of some old Chinese guy with a receding hairline in one corner, and in the middle of it all, an even older Chinese man, sitting cross-legged on a woven mat with arms crossed, hands hidden in dark blue silk sleeves. The old man had a strand of gray hair clinging to his chin. His eyes were closed. Irving hesitated wondering for a moment whether he'd caught the old bugger sleeping. Kufferman, Shang Sheng, the old man intoned in a thick Chinese accent. Please, sit. Irving jumped a little. On second glance, the man's eyes were open, sparkling slivers in a lined old face fixed on him. Irving stutter-stepped forward. Omissioner Zhao, the old man bowed. I don't remember making this appointment. But you have a problem, said the omissioner. It wasn't a question. I've, uh, yeah, I've got a problem. Sit. Irving sat, cross legged, three feet from the omissioner. Tea? Irving shook his head. The omissioner waited, face inscrutable. It took Irving a long half-minute to realize the old man was waiting for him to speak. He cleared his throat, irritated by the incense. It's, uh... It's about a memory I've sold to an extraction service. Still, the old man waited. Irving continued. It... The memory is coming back. And I... He paused. It felt like he was making a confession. I'm worried about others I've sold. I think things may have got a little out of control. I had this life with my wife. I mean, lunch. Lunch with my wife. She mentioned this this incident in Luna Park, which I couldn't remember at first, but which I've started to dream about. A hand appeared from within the omissioner's sleeve. Your memory pin, please, Mr. Cufferman. Irving's mouth tightened. The old man waited, gnarled hand extended. Irving sighed. He put his finger to his cochlear implant and murmured the password. A quiet click sounded, and the memory pin popped out of the steel. He plucked it between thumb and forefinger and handed it to the omissioner. Zhao unclipped a dark green bracelet from his wrist and unfurled it, revealing a latest model flexi-screen. One foot square, paper-thin. Soft, glowing green. The omissioner placed the memory pin on it and hid his hands back within his sleeves. The ancient lines of the old man's face were lit up by reflected green as ideograms and graphs flowed across the screen. After a minute of looking through the data, the man's disposition changed completely. He took his hands from his sleeves, stopped squinting, and pulled a pack of cigarettes from a hidden pocket. Dear, oh dear, "'So you're a Johnny,' he said, in a suddenly broad Australian accent. "'He lit his cigarette with a chrome lighter and snapped it shut, "'throwing it on the floor in front of him. "'A what?' asked Irving. "'The omissioner blew a cloud of smoke upwards. "'You know, a memory hooker, an auto "'selling off those crystal-clear seminal life moments to the ruling class. "'A Johnny!' Irving paused, trying to get past the incongruity of the broad Australian accent coming out of the old Chinese guy's mouth. What? What is this? What game are you playing here? Whatever do you mean, the old man replied with a half-smile that suggested he knew exactly what Irving meant. Irving pointed an open hand at the room. This game. This, said the omissioner, letting his gaze roam around the room. This is all part of the... Mysteries of the East, sir charge. When he said Mysteries of the East, his accent switched for a moment from Australian back to Chinese. Mysteries of the East? Mysteries of the East, mate. Rich bastards don't come here just for science. They want a mythic flourish from an ancient civilization. So I charge them extra for their ignorance. And give the same service they get from any other memory expert. But everyone says the rule of the omissioner is an ancient Chinese tradition. Oh, yeah, sure, mate. Thousands of years ago, China had the omissioners. Their sole responsibility was to remind the emperor of important traditions of precedence. Zhao took a drag on his smoke, blew the smoke upwards. But many other cultures had something similar. In pre-Islamic Arabia, people known as Rawis were attached to poets as official memorizers. For centuries, the Jews had the Tanaim, who memorized oral law. All cultures, more or less, have had memory experts attached to the elite. The advent of the printing press, books, and libraries changed all that. They democratized exomemory for the masses, for a couple of centuries anyway, until the invention of the cochlea glyph and the subsequent epidemic of memory decline, that has made good recall the rarest of commodities. These days, the virtuosos of natural memory, like me... An ironic grin touches Zao's lips. Well, mate, I'm the darling of the elite. Zao pointed at Irving with the end of his cigarette. But you ain't the elite. You ain't a repeat customer. You're a Johnny. Your wealth has come from selling off your personal history. Right? Well... And you're here to ask me to fix a dog's breakfast you've made of the inside of your head, yes? Well, yes, there's this. Then you're here to ask me to fix the unfixable. I see people like you all the time. Bloody idiots, one and all. You got no other source of income, right? Irving started to deny it out of instinct, but he relented and shook his head no. Then I can't prescribe a way out of this for you. To fix the damage you've done. To reclaim some of the fragments of these lost memories, I'll need time. Months. But even if you could afford me, the memories I'd reconstruct would mostly be copyrighted. So that's no good. He took another drag, glittering eyes fixed on Irving. You could purchase the memories of others, in order to improve your overall brain function, of course. But I'm not a butcher. I don't trade in the prime cuts of the personal histories of the desperate. Irving decided to focus on the only part of the little speech that could help him. How would other people's memories help? You don't know, asked the omissioner, with a hint of surprise. It's, Irving rubbed at his eye, he knew this, on the tip of my tongue. You don't remember. Of course you don't. How could you, after all the things those bastards have done to you? The omissioner had let his anger show for a moment but he stubbed it out with his cigarette in the ashtray in front of him. Zav took a long breath and then said, When you sell a memory to the ruling class, you're not simply selling one of your experiences. I mean, that's part of it, having their subconscious integrate someone else's experience as their own. The human brain is a wonderful thing, isn't it? it? Takes a distinct event from someone else's life and, with a little nudging from technology and a good night's sleep, absorbs it." as one of its own. But what you're really selling is the vitality and emotion of that experience. The power of these memories is such that when you experience them, they increase the strength and number of synaptic connections in your neural pathways. The rich need this more than anyone, because nearly all of them are constantly editing their histories for everything. Relationships, jobs, family making their lives seem superior to that of regular people. Bloody hell, some of them have a bad day, they'll erase it and replace it with a good one. In the end, you get a kind of mass delusion among the 1%. Half their lives are based on vivid memories they've bought from Johnnies like you. So they become even more dependent on top-of-the-line memory to fabricate visual recordings and forge a consistent life narrative. In turn... They become less and less reliant on their own brains to encode new memories. And unused, those pathways atrophy. Zhao took a long drag on his smoke and blew out a long, slow cloud, watching as it curled its way to the ceiling. So, there it is, mate. That's why they pay so handsomely for your memories. Not just for the experience, but to repair brain damage. Irving felt the dread sitting on his chest, making it hard for him to breathe. How bad thou? How much have I lost? The omissioner pointed at Irving's memory pin, sitting on the flexi-screen. Well, I can't tell you what memories you've lost. Not at a glance, anyway. What can you tell me, then? How many memories you've sold? Irving's breath came harder. Well, then, how many? Two hundred and... Nineteen. It felt like a punch in the chest. Fuck me. Hmm. That's bad, isn't it? Mate, it's as bad as it gets. Can... can I buy memories, like you said? Help repair the damage? The omissioner shook his head. You're remembering for them wholesale, but they're selling at retail. If you got no income other than selling memories, then you're nothing more than a snake eating its own tail. And you? No. I'm not going to recraft your life into some sort of delusion. That's what mercenaries like thanks for the memories do. That's simply replacing one form of mental illness, dementia, for another, psychosis. My methods are more sophisticated than those butchers. They're also... Much more expensive. Can you do anything for me? Asked Irving, voice strained. Omissioner Zhao seemed oblivious. Prescribe you Alzheimer's medication. It'll stabilize your condition, maybe even allow for a partial improvement. You'll never be the way you were, but so long as you don't sell any more memories, you should leave a relatively normal life. Relatively? Well, like I said. You have low-grade Alzheimer's. You're mildly intellectually impaired. What the fuck? Zhao paused for a moment. Apologies. I tend to be less polite with people who won't remember my rudeness. The old man held out his cigarettes. Fag? Irving shook his head. Drink? Yeah, Irving said with a sigh. Yeah, I could use one. The old man hopped up far more sprightly than Irving would have guessed, disappeared through a bead curtain in a dark corner of the room. As he did so, Irving saw that the omissioner had no cochlear glyph implant behind his ear. It had been a long time since he'd met someone unplugged. Zhao returned soon after with a bottle of amber liquid and two tumblers. The omissioner settled down again across from Irving, poured them each three fingers. Irving downed his in a single hit. It burned his throat, but not too much, and relieved a little of the tension in his chest. I could go back to work, said Irving. Nanotech pays well if you stick with it. I can make enough to afford even you, he smiled weakly. Zhao poured Irving another whiskey. Now. No? What smile Irving had faded. Impossible. Why? The omissioner finished his whiskey, eyes on Irving. Imagination, that's why. If you went back to work, you'd be largely reliant on exomemory. An exomemory never made a new discovery or developed a new idea. It doesn't have the rich associations of a natural memory. Cannot accrete the layers of knowledge interacting with each other, which gave birth to an original idea. Memory is an act of creativity. The ability to form connections between disparate memories, build something new with them, and hurl it into the future so it becomes a poem or a dance or a nanotech innovation. And you, Irving? You've pretty much lost your ability to create future memory. You used to be good at nanotech? That's gone now. You can't get that back. Irving stared at the glass in his hand. He gave a sigh that included his shoulders and said, Well, I want to keep what I've got left, including the one I have of my daughter. His throat closed a little when he said daughter. Sorry, mate, but you won't be able to do even that. You keep remembering copyrighted memories, you'll get three years in jail, and a fine so big you'll be out on the street. Zhao waved his cigarette absently in the air. You could leave the country. If you're that desperate, a few countries left don't have memory copyright. Belize has great beaches. Irving looked up at him. Belize? Belize! Fuck Belize! Zhao shrugged. Fuck Belize right in the arse. I's probably overdoing it. Irving picked his whiskey up and then put it down again, unsipped. What are my other options? Options, chief? Zao said, eyes narrowing. You're all out of options. You're a fly struggling in their web. Being aware of this fact is largely irrelevant. They'll get what they want from you, one way or another. You resist, you'll go to jail. And the judgment against you will include enforced reclamation of that stolen property. Zao placed a finger on his own temple. Sitting there inside your head. And the government ain't as careful extracting memories as the recall companies. It can get messy. Irving was silent. He let the words sting him. Let the sting linger. Unless... Zhao trailed off. His eyes bored right into Irving, searching for something. Unless... The omissioner took a long drag of his cigarette. Unless you settle for the only thing you really can get now. Revenge. Revenge? Against who? Mate, against the mercenaries who built this edifice of mnemonic servitude to the rich. Against the recall companies. Irving stroked his long, curved nose. Revenge was such an exhausting pastime. Maybe. I don't know. What else have you got? Asked the omissioner. Your family and career are gone. Irving narrowed his eyes. What was that about you being rude again? I'm just being straight with you, mate. Irving was silent as he turned it all over in his mind. Ondine looking at him, her face creased with contempt, and Eulalie, water-blurred eyes, uncomprehending at the creeping neglect of his fatherhood. Eulalie. If he could have been a good father... All the other failures wouldn't have mattered. Everything else was bullshit. If only. And he thought about the recall companies. Yeah, them most of all. With their spacious marble receptions. And employees with perfect white teeth and franchises popping up in every city, every suburb even. On the back of his dreams. His experiences. His essence. Commodified as a plaything for the lucky rich. They were the ones who had done all this, brought him to this, reduced him to this. Tore his family apart. For profit. Irving fixed his gaze on Zhao. Maybe you're right. Maybe revenge is exactly what I want. The omissioner leaned towards him. Yes. Good. Now, if this works out, you won't remember doing it. Perfect. From a certain perspective, yes. I'll fix it so you won't remember this conversation. You also won't remember that thanks for the memories stole your life or that you got revenge for all they've done. What point then, Irving? How does this act exist if you cannot remember it? Irving down the last of his whiskey cleared his throat. <sighs> Let's not get metaphysical here, a missioner. The tree still falls in the forest. The world still exists outside the boundaries of my skull. And if I make these motherfuckers pay, well, they are going to pay. Zhao nodded, eyes twinkling. Good. You're going to have to go to Thanks for the Memories, have the propriety product you are re-remembering wiped, and sell them one more legit memory. Irving shook his head immediately. No, I'm done with it. They can take back Luna Park, but no more. I've lost too much of myself. You've just got through telling me I'm going to end up a retard. Dementia. Whatever. I've done enough damage. Time to draw a line under it. Just one more, mate. It's the only way to do it. This lunch you had recently, where your wife talked about Luna Park. It has to go. Why? Because... It is part of a mnemonic loop that will keep sending you back in time to Luna Park and forward in time, to me, here. We need to snip it out. Cover our tracks. Irving opened his mouth to say no. But the image came of Undine looking at him from across the table, her expression a mixture of sadness and pity. He rubbed at his eyes with his palms. Yeah, maybe that is one memory I could do without. Good, mate. Good, said the omissioner, eyes shining. Now, they'll be uploading more than a visual recording from your pin and a memory print from your cerebral cortex. They'll be uploading a project I've been working on for a long time. An offensively expensive virus I've commissioned. One that will bypass Irving held up his hand. I don't care what it is, omissioner. Just so long as it works. Oh, it will work. When they take your memory, the virus will plug straight into the Candel U machine. It will ensure that every customer after you experiences an immediate decline in the release of certain proteins crucial to long-term memory formation. They will suffer anterograde amnesia. Everything that happens after their trip to Thanks for the Memories will be lost. They'll still have memory pins. Yes, yes, they'll still have exomemory. That's why it's such a cracker. It won't become immediately apparent, not before hundreds, even thousands have been exposed. Those infected will be increasingly reliant on a computer to tell them what day it is, where they work, whether or not they ate lunch, who their new friends are, the names of their children. They'll keep going back to recall companies, buying more memories, infecting more Candle U machines. We do this right. The whole system of memories trickling up to the rich of the desperate selling off chunks of their own soul will be broken. Irving laughed without humor. And here I was thinking I'd never achieve anything in this life. Zhao watched Irving through the glass, doing a stunned kind of shuffle, following his vulture nose down the sidewalk. You're inside at the recall center, said Zhao. She chose well. Yes, replied Chung from behind the reception desk. She knows a hopeless case when she sees one. He's better than hopeless, Zhao continued to watch Irving walk down the street. He's the utterly irredeemable still yearning for redemption. Chung waited until Irving had disappeared from sight. Mr. Kupferman said you'd come to an agreement and that he wasn't to be charged for the session. Zhao looked over at him. Charge him triple. Triple? Yeah, he won't remember what it's for, and I've told his exomemory to hide it from him. Plus, the old man smiled, his eyes sparkling. It's for a good cause. The doors to Thanks for the Memories wouldn't open. Distracted by the glare of the sun, Irving had missed the red neon sign flashing, closed, next to the entrance. Exomemory. Why is Thanks for the Memories closed? What day is it? Thursday, whispered the implant. A media release by the parent company, released nine days ago, stated that this franchise was not located in a profitable area and was consolidating its branches to maximize economic returns for shareholders. However, multiple sources on the Free Wave have contradicted this, Theorizing that the closure is related to several recent high-profile cases of amnesia. Shall I put the most-read article from each perspective up on retina? No. No, I don't care about the details. Irving pursed his lips. This was a nuisance. Just a couple more sales and he would hit the target he'd set himself. Fifteen million. And he'd take Ondine out for dinner. Reveal his newfound wealth and success. Just a couple more sales were all he needed to win his wife and daughter back. Exo memory. Yes, mister Cufferman? Give me directions to the nearest Thanks for the memories franchise.
3: And there you go. Big thank you. Thank you so much, mister T R oh, now, what a story man, uh, yes, thank you so much. And Eric, it's nice to have you back on, sir, and in the full day. Thank you very much indeed.
5: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated
0: to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual
5: results may vary.
3: So that is the main fiction. And all that's left now to see is Mr. J.J. Campanella with his
5: science news for February. Jim, sir. Greetings and manifestian ramifications, my plutarchically Pernidian listeners, and welcome to this February 2018 Science News Update. I'm your host for this rapscallion filled science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. Hi, hello, how are ya? You may be either pleased or likewise not so pleased that this month there is no individual idiot scientist of the month. However, on the other hand, I am giving the award to the entire Center for Disease Control of the U.S. instead. This is one of the worst flu seasons here in the U.S. in the last 25 years. And if you Americans out there did not know it, our dear friends at the CDC are responsible for picking out what flu viruses are going to be most prevalent in a year. They choose the most likely viruses and the production of all the vaccines is geared toward those specific strains. Well, I did not know that this process of choosing influenza viruses was apparently done by throwing darts at a board. At least you would think that, based on the fact that the American public has been told three horrific things. First, the flu vaccines this year are only about 10% effective. What? What does that mean? Well, put simply, it means you will not become immunologically resistant to 9 out of 10 flu strains that you will probably come into contact with if you are vaccinated. Second horrible thing, because so few flu viruses are covered by the vaccine, you may be in danger of getting flu twice or more even this year. Why? Because statistically, if you contract one of those 9 strains that you are sensitive to, you may get better and then catch one of the other eight that you're still sensitive to contracting. Thank you, CDC. What does the CDC say to this? Quote, everyone should continue to get their annual flu vaccine. Some protection against H3N2 viruses is better than nothing. And other components of the vaccine like H1N1 and influenza B may likely provide additional protection this year. Unquote. So, what is the third horrific thing? Is relatively innocuous influenza B the predominant strain out there this year? Heck no! It's the pathogenically dangerous influenza strain A. The vaccine is not protecting the population here, and this strain is becoming a serious health hazard in the U.S. Nationally, here in the States, there have been more than 50 influenza-associated pediatric deaths reported during the 2017-2018 flu season so far. And the exact number is difficult to pin down since some cases are reported by family and not necessarily tabulated in the official CDC count until the autopsies are performed. (sighs) So to conclude, yes, the CDC, due to their stellar procedures in protecting the population from influenza, deserves the Idiot Scientists of the Month award, I just hope you guys around the rest of the world are doing better. So here are two flu-related stories that suggest how the world may soon not have to worry about yearly flu seasons and how we may be better protected in the future. First, a new way of killing viruses and pathogenic bacteria in public places before they can even infect you. Dr. David Brenner, professor at Columbia University, published a story last week in the journal Scientific Reports, which suggests that a new type of light may be able to protect us from all sorts of microorganisms that would love to make us their dinner. Brenner's team found that continuous low doses of what he called far ultraviolet C or far UVC can kill airborne flu viruses without harming human tissues. His paper suggests that use of Overhead far-UVC lights in hospitals, doctors' offices, schools, airports, airplanes, and other public spaces could provide powerful checks on seasonal influenza epidemics, as well as influenza pandemics. We've known for decades that broad-spectrum UV light is really, really good at killing bacteria and viruses. It destroys the molecular bonds that hold the DNA together. And This conventional UV light is routinely used to decontaminate surgical equipment. In fact, I have UV lamps in my own lab, which I sometimes turn on at the end of a workday to be left on all night. It reduces bacterial contamination by quite a bit in our tissue culture work. You do not want to leave these things on during the day, though. Not good. You cannot expose people to this light. Although it works as a germicidal, it also causes skin cancer and cataracts in exposed humans. Well, Brenner hypothesized that a narrow spectrum of ultraviolet light called far-UVC could kill microbes without damaging healthy tissue. In fact, he demonstrated that far-UVC light was effective at killing MRSA, that's methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. Really nasty stuff. It's a common cause of surgical wound infections. Uh, but uh, apparently he was able to kill this off without harming human or mouse skin on which he was testing this. Brenner says, quote, far UVC light has a very limited range and cannot penetrate through the outer dead cell layer of human skin or the tear layer in the eye. So it's not a human health hazard. But because viruses and bacteria are so much smaller than human cells, far UVC light can reach their DNA and kill them. Unquote. Influenza virus spreads from person to person, mainly through fine liquid droplets or aerosols. These become airborne when people with the flu cough or sneeze or just talk, in fact. The current study was designed to test if far UVC light could efficiently kill these aerosolized influenza viruses in the air in a setting similar to a public space. In his study, Aerosolized H1N1 virus, which is a common strain of flu, was released into a test chamber and exposed at very low doses at 222 nanometers far UVC light. A control group of aerosolized virus was not exposed to the UVC light. The far UVC light efficiently inactivated the flu viruses with about the same efficiency as conventional germicidal UV light. So it was just as good as the really nasty stuff. And it kind of reminds me of that old episode of Star Trek in which they end up blinding Spock's accidentally, trying to treat him for an infected parasite. They do that with light as bright as the sun when they only needed one little non-blinding wavelength to kill the infection. Anyway, Brenner writes, quote, We are extremely excited at the prospect of this new process. Continuous very low dose rate far UVC light in indoor public locations is a promising safe and inexpensive tool to reduce the spread of airborne mediated microbial diseases. At the price of less than $1,000 per lamp, a cost that would surely decrease if the lamps were mass produced, far UVC lights are relatively inexpensive. Lower prices could lead to potentially wide sweeping impacts toward diminishing the spread of many infectious diseases. Unquote. This is all great news. But another story came out last month that may have just as important an impact on flu pandemics as, as that, maybe even more. Okay, so the CDC's big problem this year was that they did not guess which flu strains would be the most common. Well, what if that guessing was all a thing in the past and you could get complete coverage for all flu strains with a single injection. Well, that may actually happen soon. Dr. Baozong Wang of Georgia State is helping to design a new type of flu vaccine that is universal in nature. His January paper in Nature Communications covers his breakthrough. Again, going back to the CDC, seasonal flu vaccines provide protective immunity against influenza viruses by targeting the exterior head of the virus's surface protein. The main protein that's targeted is something called hemagglutinin. The influenza virus trains the body to produce antibodies against inactivated virus particles containing the head with this protein, ideally preventing the head from attaching to receptors and stopping infection. However, this head of the virus is highly variable and is different for each virus, creating a need for better vaccines. This study uses a new approach and instead targets the inside portion of the hemagglutinin protein known as the stalk, which is more conservative and offers the opportunity for universal protection. Wang says, quote, we're trying to develop a new vaccine approach that eliminates the need for vaccination every year. We're developing a universal flu vaccine. You wouldn't need to change the vaccine type every year because it's universal and can protect you against any influenza virus. One injection would last for years, unquote. What Wang wanted to do was induce immunological response to the stalk part of the protein and not the head part. That's why you're protected against different viruses because all influenza viruses share the stock domain, even though the other part of the protein is is not shared, and it varies from virus to virus. Unfortunately, the stock domain part of the virus isn't very stable. So we used a very special way to make this vaccine construct with the stock domain, and he was successful at it. Wang says that his group fabricated protein nanoparticles approximately the size of the influenza A with a core displaying a shell of conserved hemagglutinin protein domains. The binding of soluble hemagglutinin to the undissolved nanoparticles is speculated to be mediated through interaction of hydrophobic residues. That's areas that don't mix well with water. Wang states, quote, To our knowledge, this design avoids the risk of instability shown by virus-like particles under osmotic stresses or during changes in salt concentration, and prevents off target immune responses against self assembly motifs such as ferritin or hepatitis B core protein used in some designs. Unquote. The nanoparticle protects antigenic proteins so that they won't be degraded. Immune cells apparently do not have too much difficulty in taking in the nanoparticle, so the particle is much, much better than a soluble protein at inducing immune responses. To determine the effectiveness of the nanoparticle vaccine, the researchers immunized mice twice with an intramuscular shot. Then, the mice were exposed to several different influenza viruses, H1N1, H3N2, H5N1, and H7N9. Immunization provided universal, complete protection against lethal virus exposure and dramatically reduced the amount of virus in the lungs for these infected mice. Next, the researchers would like to test the nanoparticle vaccine on ferrets. I know, ferrets? Why ferrets? Well, strangely enough, ferrets are similar to humans in how their immune systems work and how their respiratory systems work. who to thunk? Anyway, from ferrets, they will go out in the future with long-term testing in humans. If it turns out successfully, we can tell our friends at the CDC to forget about flu permanently and worry about some more serious plagues that may be out there. Okay, next stories. I did say stories. The next two stories represent the glut of stuff out there on Alzheimer's, and other neurological diseases that make me a bit nuts sometimes. I have mentioned three different studies in the past that suggest wine, grape juice, or just eating plain grapes has been suggested as a way to stave off and reduce the probability of getting Alzheimer's. And I can see the scientific basis for that work, so I have more or less accepted it, and Apparently, more of this stuff comes out month to month, and and a lot of these stories I just entirely miss. Well, here are two nutritionally-based studies that have opposite conclusions. First, last month's study from Nature Neuroscience entitled, quote, Dietary Salt Promotes Neurovascular and Cognitive Dysfunction Through a Gut-Initiated Th17 Response, unquote. This study suggests that too much salt in your diet will increase your chances for dementia. The study was performed by Dr. Constantino Ayodicola at the Weill Cornell Medicine Institute. To investigate the effects of dietary salt more closely, Ayodicola fed mice a diet containing either four or 8% salt, representing an eightfold and a 16-fold increase, Of the normal mouse diet. The salt content of the mouse diets was equivalent to the upper end of the human dietary salt consumption. After eight weeks, MRI studies of the mouse brains identified a 28% decrease in the resting blood flow in the cortex and a 25% decrease in blood flow to the hippocampus, two areas of the brain that are involved in learning. The high salt also hindered brain endothelial cells from producing nitric oxide, which normally acts to relax the blood vessels and increase blood flow. There was little evidence of any vasculatory inflammatory effect that may have caused the endothelial dysfunction. It makes sense that normal cognitive function requires well-regulated blood flow. Idacola found that mice kept on high-salt diets developed dementia and performed worse on a whole series of tests, including object recognition tests and a maze test. Switching the animals back onto a normal diet resulted in improved performance on the novel object recognition test. A high-salt diet also affected normal nesting behavior, with high-salt-fed mice using less nesting material and demonstrating impaired nest-building abilities. Great, so now I need to cut down on my salt in my diet or I'll turn into a cabbage head. Well, that's lovely. Anything good on the horizon then? Well, it turns out that the second study suggests another dietary change that may help you. If you drink alcohol moderately, say a couple of glasses of wine or a couple of shots of whiskey a day, you may want to toast your glymphatic system. What is the glymphatic system? Well, it helps to clear your brain of metabolites, including the proteins that are associated with Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia. According to new research from the University of Rochester, the glymphatic system may work better if you consume low amounts of alcohol. Ahem. Be advised, kiddies. This is not your license to become bacchanalian drunken idiots. There is a limit here. The lymphatic system will perform more poorly if you drink too much alcohol. When animals are exposed to high levels of alcohol over a low period of time, the University of Rochester scientists observed markers of inflammation that rose in their brains. Also, the animals suffered impaired cognition and motor skills. So the paper was published February 2nd in the latest issue of the journal Scientific Reports, and it is entitled, quote, Beneficial effects of low alcohol exposure, but adverse effects of high alcohol intake on lymphatic function. Unquote. The article describes the effects of acute and chronic ethanol exposure and withdrawal from chronic ethanol exposure on lymphatic function. Remember, lymphatic function is a brain wide metabolite clearance system connected to the peripheral lymphatic system. Author Dr. Macon nedergaard of the University of Rochester Medical Center states, quote, prolonged intake of excessive amounts of ethanol is known to have adverse effects on the CNS, central nervous system. However, in the study, we have shown for the first time that low doses of alcohol are potentially beneficial to brain health. Namely, it improves the ability's brain to remove waste, unquote. The new study adds to a growing body of research that point to the health benefits of low doses of alcohol. While excessive consumption of alcohol has been well-documented for years, many studies have linked low levels of drinking with a reduced risk of cardiovascular disease as well as cancer. Nedergaard focuses on the glymphatic system, the brain's unique cleaning process, and he was able to show how cerebral spinal fluid is pumped into brain tissue and flushes away waste. And that waste includes proteins like beta amyloids and tau that are associated with Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia. Nedergaard in the paper says, quote, surprisingly, lymphatic function increased in mice treated with 0.5 grams per kilogram, that is low dose ethanol, following acute exposure, as well as after one month of chronic exposure. Low doses of chronic ethanol intake were associated with significant decreases in GFAP expression with little change in the cytokine profile compared with the saline-treated group, unquote. Animals that were exposed to low levels of alcohol, analogous to approximately two and a half drinks a day, actually showed less inflammation in the brain. The low-dose animals' performance in cognitive and motor tests were identical to controls. Nettergaard finishes with, quote, the data on the effects of alcohol on the glymphatic system seemingly matched the J-shaped model relating to the dose effects of alcohol and general health and mortality, whereby low doses of alcohol are beneficial, while excessive consumption is detrimental to overall health, unquote. I find this entire story really interesting because I just had a conversation about this with the Concho, the leader of my dojo the other night, he told me he had a 98-year-old great-uncle who has been having a beer, a shot of whiskey, and a shot of sherry every day for the last 80 years. By the way, that stays within the guidelines of Nettergaard's study. Anyway, apparently, the old guy's family complained to his doctor that he needed to stop drinking so much, quote-unquote, because it was not good for him at his age. And the doctor allegedly turned on the younger family members, and took them to task for being incredibly silly. He told them to leave the old uncle alone, since whatever he was doing was working for him. And you don't tell a 98-year-old man to change a lifetime of habits. Next story. Botox seems to be jumping species. Wow, that sounds like it could be a serious problem. When not used to stiffen muscles and smooth out wrinkles on your face, botulinum toxin is regarded as one of the deadliest substances on the face of the earth. How deadly? Well, it is used as a biological weapon by many nation-states, and a hundred nanograms, that is a hundred billionth of a gram, will kill half of the humans exposed to it. Nasty as that sounds, as far as Botox being dangerous in the real world outside of a Tom Clancy story, there has been only one place to be accidentally poisoned by it, and that is by the bacteria Clostridium botulinum, which is mostly associated with foodborne illness. Since Clostridium is a bacteria that doesn't like oxygen very much, that has pretty much protected us against general outbreaks and poisonings. It doesn't grow in most places very well, and certainly not out in the open. Well now, a Harvard team of investigators have discovered botulinum toxin in a strain of enterococcus. So what's enterococcus? Well, that's a bacteria that thrives in the gastrointestinal tracts of nearly all land animals. Yes, that includes the human gut. The Harvard team isolated the Botox-carrying bacterial strain from cow feces sampled at a South Carolina farm. The paper was published last month in the journal Cell Host Microbe. Lead author, Dr. Min Dong says, quote, this is the first time a botulinum neurotoxin has been found outside of Clostridium botulinum. And not just the toxin, but the entire unit containing the toxin and associated proteins that prevent the toxin From being degraded in the GI tract. Okay, so this is terrifying, but it's not as terrifying as it could be. The enterococcal isolate carrying the toxin luckily remains susceptible to key antibiotics, and it was found only once from a single animal, and no signs of botulism disease were observed in that cow. When the research team tested the toxin in rodents in the lab. It seemed to have little or no effect. It was only when they manipulated the toxin to better target the mouse and rat neurons that it became potent, shutting down nerve function and causing paralysis in the poor rodents. The researchers are currently testing the new Botox on cultured neurons to determine if it's toxin to humans. The ability to swap genes is what worried the researchers the most. Could a potent toxin from clostridium, end up in a multi-drug-resistant human strain of bacteria, many investigators now seem to think that it is at least theoretically possible, and that would be very, very bad. Dong says, quote, enterococcus is a central hub for gene transfer within the gut, and that makes it potentially scary, unquote. Once again, this all sounds like something that Michael Crichton might write about. Okay, last story of the night. It's an exoplanet update, what we've all been waiting for. It's still too early to pack your bags for the star Trappist-1, but two new studies probe the likely compositions of the seven Earth-sized worlds orbiting this cool dim star, and some are looking better and better as places to live. New mass measurements suggest that the group of seven planets probably have rocky surfaces and possibly thin atmospheres. Researchers reported all this February 5th in the Journal of Astronomy and Astrophysics. For at least three of the planets, those atmospheres don't appear to be too hot for life to form. TRAPPIST-1 is about 40 light-years from Earth, and four of its planets lie within or near the habitable zone, the range where temperatures can sustain liquid water. That makes these worlds tempting targets in the search for extraterrestrial life. One clue to potential habitability is a planet's mass, something not precisely nailed down in previous measurements of the TRAPPIST-1 world. Mass helps to determine a planet's density, which in turn provides clues to its makeup. High density could indicate that a planet doesn't have an atmosphere. Low density could indicate that a planet is shrouded in a puffy, hydrogen-rich atmosphere that could cause a runaway greenhouse effect. Using new computer techniques that account for the planet's gravitational tugs on each other, Dr. Simon Grimm of the University of Bern calculated the seven planets' masses with five to eight times better precision than ever before. Grimm says, quote, our measurements suggest that the innermost planet probably has a thick, viscous atmosphere like Venus. The other six, which may be covered in ice or oceans, may have more life-friendly atmospheres. The fourth planet from the star has the same density as Earth and receives the same amount of radiation from its star as Earth does. And that's the really cool thing. We have one planet which is very, very similar to Earth, unquote. Having an atmosphere could suggest habitability, but not if it's too hot. So, using the Hubble Space Telescope, Grimm's team observed the four middle planets as they passed in front of the star. They looked for a signature in the near-infrared wavelengths of light filtering through the planet's atmospheres. That would have indicated that the atmospheres were full of heat-trapping hydrogen. In four different observations, the Hubble Telescope saw no sign of these hydrogen-rich atmospheres around three of the worlds. And they ruled out one of the scenarios that would have made the planets uninhabitable by doing this. Well, we'll find out more about those seven planets of TRAPPIST-1 when the replacement for the Hubble Telescope launches next year. Yes, in 2019, the James Webb Space Telescope will be placed out there in orbit, And it will be powerful enough to figure out all the components of those planets' atmospheres, if those atmospheres actually exist. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care. Drink that little nip of alcohol, but not more. And keep away from drinking salt water, I guess. And keep watching the skies, especially near TRAPPIST-1. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella.
3: I thank you, Jim. What a star. Yes, had that in ages ago as well. What a professional. <laughs> thank you so much. So that is Starship Sofa's show two. No, it's 526. <laughs> you man, get some glasses, Tony. Yes, ages is creeping up. Big thank you to everyone that's helped out that put this show out together. And yes, please, Patreon. Keep banging that drum. $1, $2, $3, $4 more. Ne- ne- didn't nearly broke into a song there? A steady lad, you know. Get back to bed. Right, until next week, i just like to say night from me.
2: This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction.
1: You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. I've barely left the ground. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm running, waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets, I'm pointing them to the moon. But the work is going slowly, it won't get to you anytime soon. Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio. I wanna talk. My say. I might already be on to you and on my way, but you're so far from here, and at best I'm moving slow, so I'm waiting on your call at home with nowhere to go. Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through?
3: This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 526. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone (coughs) (coughs) Fuck.
4: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well...